Welcome to Communication Matters, the NCA podcast. I'm Trevor Perry Giles, the Executive Director of the National Communication Association. Good evening. From the University of Utah in Salt Lake City, welcome to the first and only vice presidential debate of 2020. Please welcome California Senator Kamala Harris and Vice President Mike Pence. Hi, listeners, and welcome again to a special bonus episode of Communication Matters, the NCA podcast. This is the third in a three-part special series of virtual public programs presented by NCA. Now, NCA typically holds public programs twice each year, and these public programs serve to disseminate relevant information about communication to broad public audiences. Due to the COVID-19 pandemic, though, NCA's fall public programs have been reimagined as a special series of Communication Matters podcasts, as well as video recordings of these important conversations. The public program series entitled Communicating During a Presidential Election Year includes three public programs, The Politics of Health and Healthcare, Communicating About Health in a Presidential Election Year, Communicating About the Role of Race and Social Change in Politics, and today's conversation entitled Veeps 2020, Kamala Harris versus Mike Pence. So be sure to check out NCA's YouTube channel for a video recording of today's and the other two conversations in this special public program series. So in the wake of the vice presidential debate that occurred on October 7th, we've brought together a panel of experts to discuss Veeps 2020, Kamala Harris versus Mike Pence. And I'm gonna ask all of our panelists to introduce themselves in alphabetical order, letting us know their name and their affiliation. Kari Anderson from Colorado State University. I'm Darian Carroll from the University of Maryland. Hi, I'm Sumana Chattopadhyay from Marquette University. Hi, I'm Kim Hannah Prater from the Community College of Baltimore County. I'm Sean Perry Giles from the University of Maryland. Hi, I'm Christy Sheeler from Indiana University, Purdue University, Indianapolis. Hi, I'm Mary Vavras from the University of Minnesota, Twin Cities. Hi, I'm Tammy Vigil from Boston University. I'm so thrilled you all could join us today and thank you so much for appearing on this public program and on Communication Matters. Listeners, you can view all of our panelists' full and very extensive biographies by heading to our website at natcom.org slash public programs, all one word. I also wanted to mention that today's public program is co-sponsored with the Mark and Heather Rosenker Center for Political Communication and Civic Leadership at the University of Maryland and the Communication Research Center at Boston University. So the Commission on Presidential Debates took over the organizing and hosting of the presidential and vice presidential debates in 1988. And since then, we've had 30 of these presidential and vice presidential debates. And of those, five debates have included female candidates and six debates have included a candidate of color. Now, Sumana, I know you have an extensive understanding and history of the presidential debating process and the commission's role in that process. Could you maybe talk a little bit about the history of these debates and some of the highlights that we need to be familiar with? Sure. So I guess 
You sort of mentioned a little bit about the commission. The commission's primary purpose was to actually sponsor and produce the quadrennial general election debates and also to undertake research and educational activities relating to the debates. So, and this is a non-profit, non-partisan corporation, and it has conducted debates in 88, 92, 96, 2000, 2004, 2008, 2012, and 2016. And of course, in this current year of 2020. And so this commission actually has a big educational role. You know, it wants to educate voters and it engages in various activities beyond just producing and sponsoring the presidential debates because it also creates a lot of educational materials. And also the reach of the commission is not just in US, it has also worked with other countries around the world in recent years, um, like Bosnia, Burundi, Colombia, Ghana, Romania, to mention a few, where they have also done uh, political debates and their campaigns there. So it's interesting in terms of the how the commission works with the debates. They meet with both parties and also there's a, some kind of discussion about the format for the different debates during the season. And both parties sort of have to approve. And then that they sort of, uh, like right now for in this current election, the COVID-19 pandemic and the president testing positive, the commission has said that, you know, the next debates have to happen virtually. So there is a lot of things they do with format as well, which uh, plays a role in how the debate proceedings happen. So, and we can get into this a little bit further with the VP debate later in terms of why certain questions were asked and, and so in terms of time limits and everything else. So, um, and of course, there were many interesting debates. And I know we'll talk more about gender and race later in terms of candidates, right? So, so I'm going to save that for maybe later. But yeah, so of course, Barack Obama was the first, you know, Black candidate to be on, on the national stage for a debate. And we've had five debates with women candidates in the past. So and so we'll get into that a little bit more, I think, after this. Kari, one of the preceding moments before the commission took over was in 1984. And that was the first set of debates that featured a female candidate. Do you have any thoughts on the legacy of Geraldine Ferraro and how that influences what we're thinking in terms of our assessments of Kamala Harris and the Mike Pence debate. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Trevor. 1984 was an exciting moment for women candidates in the Democratic Party because Geraldine Ferraro was the first woman to be on a major party ticket as the vice presidential nominee. There was at the time a perceived real imbalance between her level of political and particularly foreign policy experience compared to the Republican vice presidential nominee, George H.W. Bush, who was, of course, a sitting vice president and had been the head of the CIA. In the international part of the debate, they took a question about Lebanon and Ferraro answered. And then Bush responded. He, he followed up by trying to correct some of the information that he, he thought was wrong. And he called her Mrs. Ferraro instead of, you know, Congress member, Congresswoman. And he used the phrase, let me help you. And he sort of explained a little bit about the situation in Lebanon. And this is what how Ferraro responded. She said, let me just say, first of all, that I almost resent Vice President Bush, your patronizing attitude that you have to teach me about foreign policy. 
and the audience clapped and it was, you know, it's the moment that gets played most frequently from that debate. It's the one we see kind of over and over. And that was in my mind at the moment in the debate when Pence and Harris had been asked about the killing of Breonna Taylor. And Pence was expressing surprise that as a former prosecutor, Kamala Harris questioned the actions of the police or the decisions of the grand jury. And she responded by saying, I will not sit here and be lectured by the vice president on what it means to enforce the laws of our country. I'm the only one on this stage who has personally prosecuted everything from child sexual assault to homicide. And so to me, there are two things illustrated by that exchange. One is how decades after the first vice presidential debate featuring a woman, women are still articulating their qualifications and credentials because it's not assumed. But secondly, that Harris really kind of turned that on Pence. So rather than trying to have to compensate or explain why she is qualified to be in this position, she basically said, you don't know what you're talking about. I'm the only one who's been in this position. And she was able to use her professional and political background to really flip that script on Pence and take the position as the qualified person to answer that question. And that was, frankly, an exciting moment in the history of presidential and vice presidential debates. I thought of that, Geraldine, for our moment when Rick Santorum on CNN after the debate criticized Harris's answer about foreign policy. And it occurred to me that mansplaining has not gone away in the (laughs) decades, especially about foreign policy, which is a weird thing. And we can talk about that when we get to talking about gender. No, that's really fascinating. And I think the Geraldine Ferraro legacy is still there. What about Hillary Clinton's legacy? You know, as the only woman to participate in the presidential debates, what would we say about her experiences and her legacy and the impact that it may or may not have had on Kamala Harris? I kind of want to juxtapose, we can juxtapose Hillary with Sarah Palin, but I don't think, given that we're talking about vice presidential debates, that we want to ignore Sarah Palin. And so one of the things that going into these debates is the meta debate. There's all this expectations game and how people are going to do, what they're going to do poorly or not. And of course, Palin went in as an underdog candidate. She had already showed that she may not have the intellectual rigor to do the job. And with McCain, who was an older candidate, there was worry whether or not she could step in. So rather than try to rise to show her intellectual rigor, in many ways, she played up the populism that she could play up. So if you go back and listen to that debate, She's using a vernacular more of the people. So she would, she started off by whispering to Joe Biden and said, hey, can I call you Joe? You know, and it got picked up by the sound. And she would use expressions kind of like Bill Clinton did. So it's not that she's the only one who'd play that kind of, that kind of role, but she'd be like, ah, oh, shucks, Joe. Or she'd say, darn right, we want some tax breaks. And so throughout the whole thing, She was trying to play up her populism to undercut this idea. Well, yeah, she may not be the smartest person on the stage and know all about it, but she knows the people. Then you get to Hillary Clinton, which is just the juxtaposition of Sarah Palin. And so her expectation was to come in and show that she wasn't too wonkish and then not relatable. And this is where a lot of this issue about likability comes into play. We'll talk about, I'm sure, with Harris and this fine line you got to be smart enough, 
but you got to be likable. And I was just looking at, I think it was in the Atlantic, they did all these freeze frames of both candidates from Harris and Pence. And you see, you know, Harris smiling through much of it. Sometimes it was sarcastic smile. And if Pence smiled at all, it was a smirk. Like, I can't believe I'm on sta- having to manage this and be on stage and deal with this. So I think, you know, they're always this historical performance of the people who came before them is always ever present, I think, in the ones who come thereafter. Did we see any evidence of Harris attempting to calibrate or navigate these gender dynamics in the debate in in other ways besides smiling? I mean, are there other instances for how gender played in the debate in Harris's performance and in Pence's? How did Pence make adjustments for the role of gender here that may or may not be reflective of past debates. Kim, what do you think? One thing I noticed pretty early on was how when Mike Pence would say something that seemed to contradict the Joe Biden, Kamala Harris positions, that Kamala would then kind of quietly say like, that's not correct or that's not right. And even when she first reclaimed her own time, it was a very kind of steady, neutral tone because I knew that there was going to be a lot of surveillance of her tone of voice when asserting herself during the debate. So from the first time that she was just basically saying, I don't agree with your interpretation of our positions, her tone had to be very somewhat feminine in order to kind of deal with the backlash she would inevitably get from just speaking up at all. So that's one thing I noticed. And to sort of just build on that too, thinking about Pence, Pence's tone was one that I thought was very interesting. He has this very soft-spoken way of presenting himself and he's saying things and doing things that are actually extremely aggressive, but the fact that he's doing it in such a soft-spoken manner makes that aggression sort of seem to fly under the radar for some people. Mm. I think most of the time, a lot of women watching could see that and feel that familiarity of that happening in other places. Mm. But when he does that, it sort of helps the rest of, of folks who don't want to see the aggression ignore the aggression. So that soft-spoken tone, I think, helped. The other thing I would say, too, is that he... At some points, I would think he, he operated almost like what I would consider the father in an, an old American sitcom who was reprimanding his wife or maybe his daughter, where he would say things to the moderator like, now, Susan, this is important, so I'm going to continue on. And he would assert himself in a way that seemed polite and familiar, but was still an act of aggression. So Mike Pence because- imitating Ronald Reagan, imitating Ward Cleaver, right? <laughs> yeah, Mary. Yeah, I wanted to build on that, too, because as I was watching the debate, I was finding myself getting more and more uncomfortable with Mike Pence's style, not only what he was saying, which was problematic, but how he was saying it. And I was realizing that so much of his tone and style, Tammy, that you were just mentioning, you know, give him credibility. He's just naturally credible because he's got this white patriarchal authority working for him. And it gives him a pass and absolves him of responsibility for two of the most horrendous pandemics he's presided over, right? The one in Indiana that led to an enormous amount of infection and deaths from HIV AIDS. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, the coronavirus pandemic. And 
simply by virtue of the fact that he can modulate himself to such an extent and get away with saying terribly aggressive things in a very reasonable, rational way, I think allows him to take a pass on being responsible for an enormous amount of suffering and death. And it just, that made me uncomfortable. But then also when you yoke that to the fact that he refused to take no for an answer, Mm -hmm. when he refused to stop, when Susan Page kept saying, your time is up, your time is up, he steamrolled right over her. And I was just thinking how much he could get away with by virtue of the fact he refuses to follow the rules, but does so in this way that seems so non-threatening he could probably get, well, we know he's gotten away with mm-hmm. some pretty horrendous things. And the fact that he just naturally is able to do this because he's white, male, and patriarchal in that way was chilling mm-hmm. to me, absolutely chilling. And I just walked away from, I'm still disturbed by him, but I walked <laughs> away from that feeling like, wow, he's even worse than Trump. Well, at one point, he gave the moderator permission to do what she had actually said she was going to do anyway. And it all gets then compounded by the fact that Kamala Harris had to moderate her own responses. And so she couldn't really attack back because that would have made her look like she was the rude one because he was so soft-spoken. And so that caused additional problems for Kamala Harris. So, and also interestingly, you know, going back to what Trevor was saying earlier, Hillary Clinton predicted it, you know, because she did an interview earlier before the debate, and she specifically said that that Pence would try to undermine Kamala, but without bombast. In fact, to quote her, she said, Pence will somehow subtly undercut Kamala, you know. He will try to say, well, that's not the way it's done. And so then, and she went on to say that Kamala had to be firm, while at the same time being polite. So it's like, and going back to Hillary's legacy, I think that part of it is she was there. You know, she's done this three times. And also she was ready to talk about what Kamala would likely experience on that stage with somebody like Pence, because Pence is very different from Trump, you know? And so he gets away with things because he speaks in a certain way. So it's kind of interesting that people did bring that up. Absolutely, I, that bothered me as well, you know? I also watched Hillary Clinton's new podcast where she spoke with Kamala before the debate. And she said some of the same things that you just mentioned, Sumanos, about Pence being very subtle. And so he's going to try these, what she called slights at the time and paint Harris into a box. And he certainly tried to do some of those things. And I'll have to say, being from Indiana, Pence's style is I guess something that we're used to. He's very skilled at pivoting and not necessarily answering the question, but then pivoting to something that he wants to say. And in particular, he often shifts it to some concern or trust in the American people. And, you know, some sort of kind of generic statement that you really can't argue with. You know, I trust the American people. I trust the justice system. And so then by contrast, the suggestion is, well, Harris, former prosecutor, don't you trust the justice system or don't you trust the American people? And so it's 
It's that classic suggesting, but not really saying it, that Trump is also very skilled at. He has proven that, that he's very skilled in that way as well. I also, second, uh, building on the Harris awareness of, of not wanting to be perceived as, as aggressive, I feel like there's a level of emotional labor there that women, and in particular women of color, often know that they have to deal with. I mean, she's, you know, she's smiling. She's not raising her voice. She's choosing when and where to jump in. She, for the most part, cut herself off when the moderator tried to cut her off, except for as the debate went on and and she became more assertive. But it's just that awareness that I have to do this with a smile on my face. I have to seem calm and soft-spoken because I have to be aware that if I'm not, I could upset someone. I could make someone feel uncomfortable. And so just that, all of the the weight of all of these these various stereotypes and expectations I felt were were on her shoulders. But even as she did that, I thought she was assertive in the sense she would just stop it. And it's like, you know, I need to speak. I'm talking, you know, on the meme and things. But if you go on, if I went on Twitter and with a, a Republican <laughs> bent and, you know, the same thing, just like Trump said, she's unlikable. I mean, this notion of likability is playing a lot in the press. I mean, we've talked about it as scholars for a very long time, but it really has begun picked up by the right to say she's not likable. And everything was about, oh, she's too pushy. She's too confrontational. And so they're trying to hype that up as she's trying to play it down. That assertiveness and aggressiveness versus, you know, nice and pleasant is always been and continues to be a double bind that female candidates face, right? We know that. How does that intersect with the, any kind of racially charged double binds? You know, aside from Barack Obama, Kamala Harris is the only person of color to participate in any of these debates at the general election level. So it seems to me, and I think Christie's point about emotional labor is really fascinating because she seemed to have a double whammy of emotional labor, right? She had to negotiate all the gender things, but then she had this additional dynamic of the racial identity and how that played. How do you think she, she did in that regard? How did she navigate all of that? And, you know, it's probably artificial to separate them out, but uh, how did they intersect? How did they work together? I thought one thing that was interesting is kind of how she seemed to be left alone on the stage in the sense that the moderator was able or more willing to try and bring her in than the moderator seemed to be willing to try and bring Pence in. And what I thought was interesting also was how there seemed to be a willingness to allow that to happen early in the debate, to be like, I'm going to go with the moderator, even though this time doesn't seem equitable. But as the debate gets to be later, there's even a moment where Kamala is like, he interrupted me, I need more time here. And I think that that distinction really highlights how her existence was pushed to a place where she didn't really feel helped by the moderator, but felt like she still needed to do work that was important for her side of the campaign that I think is unique to both her being a woman and being a Black woman in America. That's interesting. I think the labels that come along with being a woman and being a woman of color often inform the way that people are going to read whatever's going to happen anyway. 
And so like, for example, I've been accused of being a fiery Latina more often than I would like by deans, by department chairs, no matter what I do. And so I kind of watch what I'm doing around them to say that. And I think that, you know, the stereotype of the angry black woman was something that was going to be brought up in relationship to Kamala Harris. And she kind of tried to moderate that in some ways and try not to be too forceful, but being forceful enough, there's that weird fine line that she had to walk. And no matter what happened, people are going to bring up those stereotypes in their critiques. And we even saw that in some of the post analysis already that's come out. And so one of the things that I keep sort of wishing for her and wished for her before the debate was, you know, that she just knows that that's going to be a critique and then just could be her authentic self anyway. I think there were a lot of people and looking at some of the sort of Facebook and Twitter responses to the way that she behaved, there were a lot of of women and women of color who identified with both the restraint and then the need to be assertive to sort of help yourself because others aren't going to help you. Isn't it also interesting that the assumption is that she modulated her true self, which is more aggressive and more angry or whatever. She did the work to modulate herself. And that assumes something about racial authenticity that she is really deep down. She would have just taken him to the woodshed. I think that's a very keen assessment, but I think also part of that might be the reflection of self in the critique. Like, I watched that debate and I thought, yeah, I would have had to control myself a lot more because that was offensive what he was doing. And so for me, that's kind of what that is. But you're right. There is an underlying assumption about her and her nature that is unfair and and I think unfounded. Yeah. So if I may add, Trevor, what I found particularly interesting in terms of her identity as a woman, as well as a woman of color, I found that in the answer, uh, though people would say that that was a question that wasn't answered satisfactory by either, which was about the age of the president. But I found it very telling because in that particular answer, she actually talks specifically about she was the first woman of color that was elected to be attorney general of California. And she talked about her experience with the United States Department of Justice and also talked about serving on the Senate Intelligence Committee and how she has traveled around the world and has all these experience. And so that kind of made me think that, you know, it was a question about whether she was ready to be commander in chief. And she had to throw it in there in a very subtle way. So yes, so people said she didn't answer the question, but I thought she indirectly did by talking about how she was ready if needed to be, but she was not doing it in a blatant, in your face kind of a way. So that was something that I pay attention to and I thought she did it uh, pretty well I think. She also though you know has that reputation in the Kavanaugh hearing I mean it's not just the assumption that she can do it she can do it you know she could she could have taken him to lunch you know and just gone after him and so she did it wasn't what we have seen her do what she has done time and time again which was really stand up and not and put these people in their place and I think she did have to modulate that for the occasion. I saw some news coverage in the days leading up to the debate that basically expressed how Kamala would have to scale it back from her skills as a prosecutor and what we saw in the Kavanaugh hearings and in some of the other hearings and just pull back from that more questioning since she, you know, was in a different genre of the debate. I wanted to follow up with something Samana was talking about where Kamala was basically addressing her biography in response to the question of the president 
and Vice President Biden's ages. So it was interesting how after Kamala went over her, a lot of her personal and professional biography, how she said that she shares similar goals with Biden and that's why Biden selected her. I thought that was really powerful because it definitely expressed like, it's less about her identity of being a black woman, but like, here's how I grew up, but also here are my professional qualifications for serving in this position. And even though Kamala didn't directly address a response to that question, she kind of subtly said like, I've had so much professional experience that's relevant to this job that I could potentially step in if necessary. So I thought it was very interesting how she kind of merged the personal biography, her professional experiences so far, and how that could potentially serve as a benefit if she needed to step in as president. I'd like to follow up on that as well, because the other question that, that of course, has gotten a lot of attention that she didn't answer directly was the court packing question. So both she and Biden got that question, and they both handled it really differently. Biden gave sort of a, what I would call a standard dodge of that of that question and just shifted the, the conversation to, you know, the confirmation process or whatever. Harris came prepared for that question and gave an answer that, I think is quite surprising in the history of presidential debates and didn't really get as much attention as it should have gotten. She's like, yeah, let's let's talk about court packing. Let's talk about the fact that in yeah. all of these appellate court judges nominations that Trump has made, 50 or so, not one is a black person. And so right there, she's shifting the conversation to structural racism and the ways in which, yeah, we, we pack all of these roles in different ways. There's ways to pack the court that isn't just adding numbers to the Supreme Court membership. To me, that really you know, made an impression about the importance of having people with diverse intersectional identities at these tables and in these conversations, because I had never, I didn't even know that statistic until she she told us in the vice presidential debate. And I certainly hadn't thought about it to be directly connected to the question of court packing. So I really appreciated the way that she started to shift some of those terms in ways that are not the standard kind of response that you hear typically from candidates. Yeah, you're unique in your praise of her acumen in answering that question. Everybody else is just, eh, she didn't answer the question. So yeah, I appreciate that. I think that's right. It's also, of course, true that she is unique in her capacity to make that point. And that's the point you're making about the importance of having people of color in these situations and in these debates. So that's good. This is such an interesting thread that we're on. I wanted to mention that Prior to Biden picking Harris, you remember all the talk about the folks he was interviewing and considering for the job, and so many of them, the women of color, in particular Harris, were getting the advice, don't look too ambitious. You don't want to look like you're auditioning for the role. And so somehow <laughs> she's managed to work this double bind really effectively or challenge the double bind really effectively by showing how incredibly smart and experienced she is without looking like she's trying to push Biden out of the position, uh, something that we might all be concerned about, right? So somehow she's managed to show that she's really experienced, ready to do the job, 
willing to point out the issues about structural racism that are very present and worrisome and still not make us overly concerned that she's ready to push Biden off the stage and, and take over as president. Stage a coup on January 21st. <laughs> no, that's good. That also bleeds into the next question I think that we should probably talk about, and that's the sort of dynamics of what's going on on the far left wing or the progressive end of things with regard to Kamala Harrison. Progressives are maybe not overly enthusiastic about the Biden-Harris ticket, especially given Kamala Harris's prosecutorial past. How did she navigate all of that? You know, the Black Lives Matter movement, the calls for defunding the police, the discussions about structural racism. How did she, did she, I guess is the first question, did she attempt to placate the progressive wing of the party? Or did she just get an assist from Pence when he indicated that she's, according to Newsweek, the most liberal senator in, in the United States Senate? I've heard a couple of takes on that, you know, like I do think that she being Biden's running mate, because this is something that has come up often that would she embrace her primary platform or would she talk more about Biden's Biden's platform? So I think she managed to do it in a somewhat effective way because she talked about the Green Deal or, you know, fracking and Biden doesn't want to end fracking. And, And so but one thing that I've heard is that Maybe, you know, when Pence actually called her out and said, oh, you want to frack and this. But at the same time, he also said, you are this prosecutor or whatever. So he was going all over the place with her. So I think one thing she could have done is highlight that hypocrisy, you know, that at one point you're saying I'm too liberal and, you know, I and Biden are going to do this. And at the other side, you're saying, oh, I'm too conservative or too not progressive. So I think maybe that's one area where she could have done a little bit more with that. Uh, There was an opening, but maybe she was not, she did not want to attack a lot in this debate. So maybe that's what what it was. But in my opinion, she did okay, but maybe she would have done a little bit more there. You just let it sit out there as an meme, right? I guess for me, I think that I'm, as one of the people that might be part of the progressive wing of the Democratic Party, I guess, this is as proud of the Biden-Harris campaign as I've been. What really stood out to me was the part where they get to the Breonna Taylor question and Harris notes that justice was not served for Breonna Taylor. At the same time that Pence wasn't as good as Trump was against Biden and being like, oh, you don't care about law and order. You can't say law and order. I think that Harris finds a way to both show that she continues to believe in law at the same time that she understands that law and systemic racism is happening in America and is a problem. So I was happy with that during the debate. I was really proud of that. I'll add one more thing, Trevor. I agree with what Darian and Sumana said. I, I would only point out a couple of other things where Harris had to, I think, moderate because Pence was really trying to paint her as Sumana said, in, you know, as the, the liberal wing, I mean, kept bringing up Green New Deal, kept bringing up, you know, I think he used some language that, that really tried to paint her in that particular box. And so she had to sort of step away and say, no, this is what Joe Biden's platform is about. So I thought she did a nice job of, of saying, well, she didn't say it this way, but, you know, I'm not the one running for president now. It's Joe Biden. These are his policies. This is what he stands for. These are the facts. I think all of that helped to, to try to 
to moderate. Maybe she's not, you know, she's not the, I guess, the, the radical or progressive candidate that maybe some want, but I thought she did a nice job of, of towing that line. I just wanted to add one other thing about Kamala as prosecutor. I found it interesting when they were discussing Breonna Taylor and George Floyd, how when Mike Pence responded, he used such terms that seems to be opposites in his book, such as rioting and looting versus like rule of law. And then saying Kamala believes that police are or the law enforcement are systemically racist. So it's kind of like on one hand saying like, oh, she's happy with rioting and looting, a.k.a. Black Lives Matter, but also she criticizes law enforcement. So I found it very kind of peculiar that Mike Pence would kind of hold two opposing judgments about Kamala while still criticizing her for being a former prosecutor. You found that peculiar, huh? (laughs) (laughs) Sean, did you want to follow up on that? Well, and I, there's a part when she was listing up all the people that were supporting the Biden-Harris ticket, and it was like generals, and it was all these kind of middle-of-the-road, non-political. We didn't get a list of progressives who were coming on board. I mean, I just felt there are times I agree that she did give a nod towards more the progressive side, Black Lives Matters, but other ways. David Brooks' column today was all about how in the COVID response, she was like, we need a, she wasn't talking about such a huge government intervention. She was talking about the American people need to know this information so they can make choices for their own families, which is a very kind of conservative response to it. So I think she was very strategic going into it as many do, you know, move towards the middle to pick up more independence and rather than progressives. And we'll see what happens, you know, with the progressive side when it comes to voting. Well, if Darian was so impressed, maybe that's a sign that uh, she did okay. So I think there were a couple of things just to mention. One was I really liked the line that kind of got hidden that she said about bad cops are bad for good cops. That was a, a good way of sort of threading the needle that she needed to thread there. Um, but she also, I think one of the things that we can't underestimate was how effective, and I think Trevor, you kind of alluded to this before, Mike Pence was at making the case for her. So in doing that, <laughs> one of the things that he did was he he created a contrast that if you are on a on the, the far end of the progressive scale, you're looking at these two people representing the two tickets, and you're saying, okay, which of them is at all closer to where I stand? And I think he provided that comparison to say that, that the, the right was way right compared to where Biden and Harris stand. That's really interesting. So a lot of the commentary afterward, after the debate on Wednesday, was that this probably isn't going to move the needle, but this vice presidential debate was really important. And it was important because the candidates at the top of the ticket in both cases are septuagenarians and advanced septuagenarians in the case of Joe Biden. And that Donald Trump's kind of 
you know, a sick guy. I mean, he's got this COVID thing going and that's having an impact. So this vice presidential debate was really important. Do you think that's right? And do you think that maybe we need more vice presidential debates in the future or just if the candidates are really old and sick? How did the candidates deal with the importance of this debate, if it was important at all? And, you know, what does that tell us about moving forward? Well, I, for one, would love to see more vice presidential debates. (laughs) I'll say it. I think it was and is important for another reason. I mean, arguably, the stakes were really high for Pence. He's the sitting vice president that their campaign is behind in the polls. President Trump is ill. President Trump didn't move the needle during the the presidential debate. So Vice President Pence really had to do some damage control and move things forward. And I think he held his own with his followers. I don't know that he, as you said, Trevor, I don't know that that minds were changed at this point in time. But I, I, I feel like the two vice presidential candidates are sometimes also the adults in the room. And I, I would like to see more of them in public. Yeah, I I kind of, I agree. Like vice presidential debates add a different flavor to the campaign. And also I was thinking more from the perspective of the diversity of voices, because if you look at Joe Biden, he's this old white guy, you know, and the Democratic Party is looking different now. It's not just about old white men. So also Kamala being there, you know, she's a woman of color and and not only she's black, she's also Asian American half, you know, so there is a broader identity that she appeals to. So even bringing that and from the democratic standpoint, I think that is also something that adds to the whole piece because, you know, like Darian mentioned, the progressives are getting more on board with the ticket. And, and I think if it was just, if we did not see enough of that extra voice there, even for the Democrats, I think it's a positive. Even though Joe has been doing well in the polls in general, I do feel that Kamala's candidacy has added more energy to the race in many ways. So just for that reason, I think also thinking back to past elections, like even with somebody like Sarah Palin, she had issues, but you know, she did, that was a debate that a lot of folks watched. So sometimes it's also the entertainment part of the piece, which comes more in VP debates. We had the whole fly incident in this one. It's always like VP debates have something happening there that is not necessarily all about the politics. So I think that there's a little bit of that as well uh, with the VP debates bring to the fore as well, so. Okay, anybody who had the fly box on their VP debate bingo card, check that off. I was wondering how long it would take for that to come up. I think you're right, Sumana, but let's say moving forward are Dick Cheney versus Joe Lieberman or Tim Kaine versus Mike Pence. I mean, that diversity piece may not always be there. Should we still have more vice presidential debates? John Nance Garner once said that the vice presidency is worth a warm bucket of spit. Maybe spit was what he said. So, you know, is are we trapped in this weird place with this weird office that nobody seems to like, despite Christie's call for more, more vice presidential debates? So one thing that I kept thinking, I mean, a lot of people were anticipating this debate because so many of the norms of presidential debates were broken in the first one. And I think people were looking towards this debate to see, okay, can the format or ritual be 
salvaged, you know, after that, that last debate. And so although political scientists want to focus just on did it move the needle or not, and if it didn't immediately move the needle, it's a useless exercise. Um, I think we as communication scholars know that things like televised presidential debates are ha- are rituals that help us construct democratic culture. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I want us to continue to nurture these and also to protect them as sort of exchanges of ideas that everybody is contributing to in good faith and not trying to sabotage or derail. Because if we don't do that, it's just another step away from sort of democratic norms in our political system. And as we all know, that so many of those democratic norms have been just obliterated in the last three years. That I think that's why this, the vice presidential debate felt additionally important. And Mike Pence arguably calibrated his performance to sort of respond to what happened with Donald Trump a week ago, right? Yeah, Mary, go ahead. Yeah, and I also would like to see more vice presidential debates because at the debate itself, I learn a lot, if not substance of platforms necessarily. I'm learning a lot about the demeanor of the two candidates, but I also think that it's not only the debate itself that is so important in the media environment today. It's the way in which the debate generates memes, the way parts of it get taken up and circulated across different social media platforms that gives people an opportunity to interact with it in really particular ways. A lot of that has played against Kamala Harris prior to the debate anyway. There was a lot of really racist, sexist stuff that was circulating across Facebook in particular about her prior to the debate. And all of those moments of interaction and the intertextuality of the debates has an important role in helping us to figure out who the candidates are, how they will be in office when one of them is in office, but also just help us to give meaning to the office itself as well, right? Mm -hmm. And, And negotiate what that means now in in the face of so few democratic norms holding up now in the face of a president who's very sick apparently mm-hmm. all of these things are really <laughs> important moments for allowing us to figure out the meaning of all of these different aspects of the office and the candidates who are vying for that office mm-hmm. yeah i agree i think that president vice presidential debates do a lot to produce what we think the candidates will be. The other thing that I thought was interesting is that it seemed like for some recipients of the debate, this was an opportunity for Harris to gain ground, surprisingly. Like, for example, I watched the MSNBC coverage directly after the debate, and there was like focus on Harris's ability to remain stern, yet to clearly identify that there was a problem there. So like one of the anchors noted that that was the kind of look you get from a black mother and then like Michael Steele comes on and Michael Steele was like, yeah, that is the kind of look you get from a black mother. And I was like, you know, I think these kind of things are helpful at this moment, even if it's not moving the needle, but to kind of sure up some parts of who they are looking to get to vote for them to be like, I can be comfortable with this. There's something I can identify with here that I wouldn't have seen Kamala Harris do if we hadn't watched the debate. Mm -hmm. And that bleeds nicely into the next sort of 
question that I'm, I'm interested in your take on. How did the news media intertextually or otherwise engage and the pundits and how is the democratic culture processing and thinking about this, this vice presidential debate? What can we expect to see on Saturday Night Live with Maya Rudolph and whoever that guy is who plays Mike Pence? How is the culture processing all of this, do you think? Yeah, so I want to kind of briefly address parts of that question. Okay. So after the debate, I kind of was flipping through different networks, but I did catch Van Jones's response or part of his response saying as far as like how Harris performed that she was definitely navigating that tightrope as a black woman, kind of like you don't want to come across as the angry black woman but also you want to not be just run over by Mike Pence, especially when he said things that were untrue about the Biden-Harris positions. So it was interesting seeing that dynamic between Ben Jones and Rick Santorum. So just hearing the interplay about was race important and how she depicted herself. There were other commentaries I heard on NBC kind of like that it did not, move the needle as far as some of the pundits believe there. So Mm -hmm. it was very interesting how immediately after the debate, it just seemed kind of a consensus that both candidates seemed to do what they were kind of expected to do. To mention as far as humor, on the show directly following the debate of The Late Show with Stephen Colbert, Colbert states that I spent the whole debate on the middle of my seat. So just talking about how less chaotic the debate came across that, you know, of course there were jokes about the fly on Mike Pence's head. And even last night on the daily show, Trevor Noah kind of like made light of the fact that Mike Pence actively avoided responding to several questions that he was directly asked about. And there was a whole game show where (laughs) basically it would be a quote from Mike Pence's response. And then there would be four options of what was the question that Pence was asked. So it was very interesting to see how some of these hosts have responded. I have a couple of predictions about SNL. I'm not, you know, of course, we'll have to wait and see. But I think while there'll be some jokes about the fly on Mike Pence's head oh, yeah. and about Kamala Harris's facial expressions, I really think that there's going to be... Oh, yeah, and I wanted to mention the person who's played Mike Pence the past several seasons is Beck Bennett. So I'm, he will probably be back. But I think what's going to end up happening in this weekend's episode is a lot more cameos by celebrities. So I think there's going to be interruptions of the vice presidential debate by Alec Baldwin playing Trump, by Jim Carrey playing Biden, and who knows what else. There may even be references to the recent news about Amy Comey Barrett having served within a political group as a handmaiden. So Mm -hmm. I wouldn't be surprised if there's not references to Margaret Atwood's The Handmaiden's Tale. So we're just, you know, I think that there can be some humor that comes directly 
from this debate. And I definitely think Maya Rudolph is well equipped mm -hmm. to betray Harris. But knowing how SNL has treated VP debates in the past, I wouldn't be surprised if there's more interruptions by the celebrity guests. I would be kind of, or I wouldn't be surprised to see if maybe they got Jeff Goldblum to come in and be one of those interruptions as the fly, right? Oh, yeah. Reference. <laughs> I think that would be one. I, I'm also interested to see if they end up doing Maya Rudolph referring to Pence as Michael, because there was the moment when Kamala called him Michael Pence. Mm -hmm. And so that bringing back that Mamala role that mm -hmm. they had, had her step in to the first debate as the first time. So I think those are going to be a couple of things that might be fun and interesting ideas for Saturday Night Live. Not that there isn't a plethora of them. I think Kim, you've done a wonderful job of like outlining a whole ton of them. Plus I'm sure plexiglass will come into play somehow too. Yeah, no doubt. But I was a little disappointed, I have to say, in the larger discussion of the debates. And maybe I'm not disappointed or shouldn't be surprised, but I am disappointed that people didn't pay more attention to Mike Pence's aggression because it was so subtle. And I know that it was so people actually have been framing his performance as much more polite. And even I think I've heard the word genteel a couple of times. And so while it's not surprising, it is disappointing that folks aren't seeing that aggression. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I wanted to, to pick up on that because I think one thing that this debate allows us to do or the two debates allow us to do if we take them together is talk about how Pence and Trump are two different faces of this authoritarian masculinity that we sort of saw the boorish Trump version of it in 2016 when he was sort of menacing Hillary Clinton on the stage and, and people talked about that quite a bit. And women were talking about sort of recognizing the men in their workplaces and lives who had, who had intimidated them in that way. But what Pence adds to that discussion is he is also a face of authoritarian masculinity, but he's the face that people see in sort of conservative evangelical circles or and it's this very solicitous polite almost chivalrous but also very condescending articulation of his authority and so as people kept saying as pundits especially said you know Mike Pence's debate style is very, very different from Donald Trump's. I think it's up to us to point out the things we were talking about at the beginning of this conversation, which is it's the same power dynamic. It's the same, you know, it's the same thing going on. And in fact, this notion of an authoritarian masculinity is also shaping how people are, are evaluating Harris. So yeah, the debate that's going on implicitly in all of these debates is what is the continued role of authoritarian masculinity in our political culture? Yeah, I wanted to pick up on that. And this goes back to what Mary talked about in the beginning. And however we talk about it, I think about it as kind of this crisis of white masculinity and how that's playing out. And I don't think, I know this isn't part of the debate, but now we have a governor who's a woman who's being a plot by militants against her. I mean, this kind of, you know, misogyny that's played out within the Trump campaign is certainly not new to Trump. Then we've seen it over and over throughout these debates is now really at a high level. And I think, as we all know, the backlash to when you see any progress that's being made, whether it was Obama and the backlash of white supremacy. And now the fear, I think, is that as you see a candidate who could be the next vice president, who is a black woman, Southeast Asian woman, that that's just even going to empower and threaten the sense of white masculinity even further, which, which worries me tremendously. 
Well, that's an optimistic way to end things. Thank you all so much. This was a really insightful and penetrating discussion of the Veeps 2020 and the Kamala Harris-Mike Pence debate that has just happened. And so, listeners, I also want to thank you for listening to this third in a series of NCA public programs and special episodes of Communication Matters, the NCA podcast. I hope you enjoyed the discussion. I hope you learned a great deal from the discussion, as I certainly did. For more information about NCA's public programming efforts, be sure to visit the public programs page on the NCA website at natcom.org slash public programs, all one word. And also, of course, as always, be sure to subscribe to Communication Matters wherever you listen to your podcasts. In NCA news, the NCA 106th Annual Convention will be completely virtual this year and will include both synchronous and asynchronous sessions. Asynchronous content will be available beginning November 1st on NCA Convention Central. Most synchronous sessions will take place as originally scheduled on November 18th through the 22nd. Visit natcom.org convention to register today. On that page, you'll also find links to NCA's guide to the 2020 convention and a best practices document for participating in the convention virtually. This has been a special episode of Communication Matters, the NCA podcast. Communication Matters is produced by Chelsea Bowes, NCA Assistant Director for Digital Strategies. Additional writing and content development support for this special episode was provided by Lakeisha Anderson, NCA's Director of Academic and Professional Affairs, and Caitlin Reinauer, NCA's Academic and Professional Affairs Manager. Thanks for listening. Music.